0: We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your
1: podcasts. Hello, and I can't believe I'm saying this. Welcome to another episode of History Hack, specifically the Sharpshooters series uh, with Zach White and myself, Marcus Cripp. This is our official episode two or three, depends where you start counting. Uh, we've already got brought you Wellington after Waterloo, and uh, the introduction to the Peninsular War. And what we're going to do this week is start talking about the much-fated gorillas. It's really where we get the term from, and there's a lot of history to unpack. Focusing in on Sharp himself. Now, obviously, he has a very complicated relationship with the gorillas throughout the series, in the books and the films, insofar as he ends up marrying a very famous gorilla, Teresa, who fights alongside him, and he's deeply impressed by her like, warrior uh, warrior uh, spirit that she goes in. She's got a very deep, dark history, which really does actually fit in with the Peninsula War and its sadness. Some of the um, gorillas he comes across, he ends up fighting, and others he's just genuinely quite wary and afraid of. There's a lot of history there that is actually quite accurate uh, by Bernard Cornwell. And, uh, there's a lot there that's quite dark
2: and relatively depressing, but that's quite fitting for the Peninsula War, wouldn't you say, Zach? Yeah, it definitely is. We should probably help people a little bit in terms of the words and where they come from, first of all. Um, we call it the Guerrilla Wars and we talk about the Guerrillas. Uh, the spelling is important because it's a Spanish word. I think the, I mean, my Spanish pronunciation is awful, but I think it's something like a guerrilla and it literally means little war. And that's quite a good way of thinking about the the guerrilla struggle because we're talking here about what we now know as guerrilla tactics. This is where we got the term for that kind of type of counterinsurgency operations or sorry, or rather insurgency operations, Um, the, the guerrilla tactics. This is where it comes from. And essentially we're looking at something that's a bit like a hit and run style operation where you have very small bands of armed individuals who will pick the ideal spot for an ambush carry out a quick ambush maybe kill everybody in a a convoy of supplies maybe um, attack a small unit kill as many as possible and if they can't complete the job then they will pull back so you've got that kind of hit and run mentality who were they well as you kind of suggested, Marcus, it's a really mixed bag, men and women, which I think is significant. We quite often focus on the male stories from this conflict, but women were also guerrillas, and and we'll talk about some of those later. The the common perception is that they were patriots. The reality is that some were patriots, but others were, to be honest, rascals on, on the make. Some had army credentials, some were deserters, Some were individuals who had been separated from their units. Others, crucially, were just bandits, Um, people who wanted the opportunity for plunder. And they masqueraded under this title of being a guerrilla. But in reality, they they were just looking to to target anybody or anything in order to um, acquire food or or, or whatever it might be. Some actually joined out of necessity. Um, So you've got to bear in mind that Spain is a very, very poor country. During this time, the British look down their noses at Portugal and Spain in terms of the extent of their poverty. And so if you're starving and you're part of a guerrilla band, you'll get fed because they take their supplies from, from the locals. So it's quite a good way of surviving. So there are lots of reasons why people join. But the, the movement as a whole was born out of what we discussed last time, which is why we've done this in sequence. The Dostoevsky uprisings and the start of that um, almost revolution against Napoleonic control. Well, it was exactly that. It was quite a popular uprising, um, using motivations
1: of the church, the state, and the foreign invasion. And you focused in, you mentioned the word counterinsurgency. Uh, these days when we're talking about guerrillas, they tend to be, um, our enemy in the news. Uh, but it hasn't always been that way. Today, you might hear the term coin operation, that's counterinsurgency. If you're a um, student of strategic studies, you might hear the term fourth generation warfare or um, mixed and blended warfare, where you've got regular forces and um, counterinsurgency or irregular forces. And we think of these all as new terms born out of borderline terrorism, uh, but this is not a new type of warfare. It can trace its way back to the Roman Empire. and. um Guerrilla operations against them. But this is where we get the word from, as, as Zach very rightly says, you know, guerrilla you know, small war. And it's given its turn and it's given a whole new meaning across this near decade of bloodshed. And it's given a lot of imagery. Uh, you just need to look up Goya's uh, images, the horrors of war, to kind of get some of the feeling. It's got quite a romantic feeling, not just, I'm thinking of Teresa in Sharp, of um, patricism. But there's, there's a kind of dark undertone of their motivations, but also what they can gain out of it. And uh, some people were pretty much bandits and they could get a lot of riches from this, robbing from both sides. Some
2: had very little uh, scruples about where they went with this. I want to pick up on something that you said there, actually, Marcus, because we were talking last time about how a certain historian turned around and described the, the guerrillas as terrorists which I think is a really problematic way of thinking about it. But I can understand why, if people weren't familiar with the Peninsula War and, and the whole history, they might make that comparison, because, like you say, some of the, the tactics are similar. I think
1: Napoleon and the Marshals are probably thinking of similar tactics. And something I want to come on to briefly at the end is there was, you know, a counterinsurgency to this uh, warfare. And they probably would have used the terms very similar. Not the word terrorist, it's quite a more modern word, but it's, that's the kind of thing we're thinking of. But an, it's an uneasy alliance between Britain and Spain in this time. We, we tried to cover some of it last time about Britain being asked by the Portuguese after like a, an official war. Britain went in and we worked very warmly with the, uh, the Portuguese government and the, the military that was left behind and formed very good alliances and the systems worked quite symbiotically. Now, we were now allied with Spain. And this is really difficult because this is, we're now talking the beginning of the war, 1807, 1808. Remember, the easiest way to always like kind of bookend this, Battle of Trafalgar, 1805, you've got a combined French Spanish fleet. And we were a Protestant country against a Spanish country. The, the Spanish weren't necessarily that fond of the British. Portugal's very different with this long alliance. And then you've got people fighting not for Britain, but for their own motivations on liberalism, on their kind of independence, on their church. And when I say liberalism, I mean liberalism from Bonapartism, which represented, hopefully, maybe a forward liberal um, regime. So it's very difficult. But we're also just fighting because people are there. These are very sometimes very small communities and you've got a foreign oppression just appearing. These are not necessarily a national coordinated effort. Uh, these are very regional with regional commanders who sometimes didn't talk to each other and sometimes hated each other. Uh, so it's a really rich history.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with you. There's, this is one of the interesting things that um, I was reading up on, that in 1808, the Spanish Junta which is the Spanish government in effect in exile, tries to issue some regulations about the rules concerning formation of guerrilla bands and the way in which they should operate. And I've kind of found it quite ironic because if you know anything about how this war plays out, the single biggest problem they have is that there is no centralised control because the French have marched into Madrid and occupied Madrid up until 1812. There is, it's very hard to form a centralised government. And in any case, in different parts of, um, the country you have individual quintas, regional kind of governments, regional councils that govern provinces, whether it be Galicia or um, Andalusia or wherever it might be. The, the Spanish government in exile actually ends up in Cadiz, right at the bottom of the country. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's not a, a centralized campaign, and I think this is part of the reason why some of the bandit groups are able to thrive so effectively, just as in other regions, such as Navarre, for example, which we'll talk about, um, you've got these very, very strong um, guerrilla operations. I just want
1: to talk about some of the motivations of a, a, let's say a stereotypical um, guerrilla. And there is no such thing, because Spain is a huge country, like us say, from Cadiz all the way up to the Pyrenees. Um, But in the reading for this, kind of a stereotypical gorilla um, is te- typically going to be a man from the rural areas. And there are some really notable uh, female characters that we're definitely going to come onto in a moment. which should think of fantastic history. But a kind of a rural man. And it's kind of quite a mountainous region. And this is quite important because the low flat countries of Spain are quite heavily controlled by the nobility. There's a different social structure up in the mountains. They're far more self-sustaining. And people would typically have a couple of different herds like goats, maybe some sheep and maybe a few fields of crops that they would be within their local community, uh, self-sufficient, trading with their friends and family. They probably already have firearms experience. So muskets, they might be a few generations old. Could be a match lock rather than a flint lock. It's being lit by a hot burning, um, like, piece of twine, slow burning match that lights the powder rather than a flint. And they might have something more modern and sophisticated. But they, they use these to probably keep wolves away from their herds. They might go actively out hunting to supplement their meal with venison. There's actually, in this time, there's even in the Pyrenees, some uh, bears so they could go hunting for pelts, or maybe they'll be slightly on the dark side of the law already, and being especially up in the Pyrenees regions, and be engaging in smuggling across the border, bypassing the roads, and going straight over the mountain peaks, and they'll probably carry carry a firearm in case they see French gendarmerie, and they'll want to be wearing them off, basically, maybe fighting, but definitely um, having a weapon and looking aggressive, and they'll be working in very small units of close friends in uh, handfuls doing this but it puts the foundation that you've got quite tough self-sufficient families in the hills that don't really want law and order and they've already got not military experience but experience with
2: violence and experience with weapons you know the way i you know i like a dodgy game of thrones comparison for one of these, I know how you like a dodgy Game of Thrones experience. I've got a feeling where this might be going.
1: Yeah. So,
2: if you want to do a Game of Thrones comparison for the Gorillas, my thinking is you're basically looking at Beric Dondarrion and the Brotherhood Without Banners. What do you think?
1: Yeah, but with a huge element of the Free People.
2: Yes. Up north of the Wall,
1: even yes. tougher couple yes. of furs, couple of pelts. They've got their own sub-tribes going on in there. And do you know what? They're quite happy to be left alone.
2: But as soon as the rangers start coming in, they're going to castrate you and kill your friends. Which is a really important point, actually, for all that we are joking about these comparisons. This is an incredibly brutal element of the conflict. Obviously, conflict is going to be brutal anyway. It's a war. People die. And it's horrendous. And that's not to belittle that. But the the guerrilla war as a kind of subset of the Napoleonic Wars is uniquely um, kind of vicious and brutal in terms of the violence on both sides. And that is important to, to stress that the Spanish give as good as they get, as do the French. Well, it's a really difficult time, isn't it? I always think of the Napoleonic Wars as kind of a,
1: an emergence and evolution of modern warfare. But you've got some quite historical, almost outdated concepts in there. So you will have battles that will be lined up, Waterloo especially, and they wait for the ground to dry. There's not a lot of fighting until, not a set time, but until both sides want to start fighting. You've also got issues with things like parole, where officers will give their word of honor that they're not going to escape. And these days you'd put everybody in what's called sea purse, with prisoners of war, because that came in the second World war kind of era. But you didn't do that to officers. They gave their word. They were going to behave honorably. Spies were still treated as spies because they didn't wear uniforms. But Wellington had his exploring officers who wore uniforms. So, therefore, if you captured them, you had to treat them like an officer and a gentleman and treat them very honorably. There were unspoken rules of war, such as in the sieges, that you should surrender when the war was breached. Otherwise, horrors may pursue. And there's some really uh, old fashioned elements within there that go out the window with the guerrillas because they're not part of the armed forces.
2: Yeah, I think this is, you're quite right, this is one of the reasons that there's a difference because the the Peninsular War as a whole, and particularly in the, the way that it's often studied in terms of the big battles, the, the armies and so on, is a war based around the principles of the, really the 18th century, not really the 19th century, um, more kind of Ancien Regime, although, Obviously, Napoleon comes in and kind of sweeps away a lot of those principles. But it is, as you say, all based around honour. And there are codes of conduct for the officers, particularly because across much of Europe, France being the exception because of the reforms that were brought in during the French Revolution. What you see is a, is a, a class divide between the aristocratic or more wealthy classes uh, who are drawn into the officer corps and then the rank and file, which invariably are much poorer so that's why you see the kind of the, the honor and embryonic rules of war um, kind of being involved there and, and you talk about sieges and that's something that goes back to the age of enlightenment and this idea of not wasting lives unnecessarily in a bloody assault on a fortress but the guerrilla war is a completely different concept because the guerrilla war in some respects actually is much more personal and it's much more immediate one of the big motivators for a lot of the guerrillas when they are in when if, if they sign up for patriotic reasons is the fact that they're doing so because of a desire for revenge because their family has been murdered or their sisters have been raped or and this is what we're talking about you know really atrocities ultimately and this is why the terrorism thing to go back to what we were talking about earlier just for a second this is why the terrorism label annoys me partly because it's anachronistic uh, if you bother to go on the Crown Prosecution Service website, you'll see that it's basically described as um, uh, an attempt to um, influence uh, a government or an international body or intimidate the public due to a desire to kind of advance a political, religious, racial or ideological agenda. Now, the last bit, you could say that that sticks in the sense that they are pursuing... A political and ideological agenda. That agenda is the French aren't the legitimate rulers of our nation. Our king is Ferdinand the seventh. We want to see him restored. But that for me is, is kind of where it stops. Yes, they're agitating, but they're agitating against a regime that is in itself insurgent. So for all that I kind of made the mix up earlier about counterinsurgency and insurgency, the line is, is quite kind of blurred in terms of who's in the right here and who's in the wrong um, and it's as I say the insurgent tactics that cause the confusion and it is I mean we were saying last time we mentioned at the beginning here there was
1: a historian who was doing a, a podcast very well known historian very well known podcast we won't name it unless you message us we probably will uh, and he was calling them terrorists disparaging because he loved Napoleon Bonapartism it isn't this great that they were trying to bring enlightenment to Spain and Portugal no That is not how the common person saw it. Now, there were such a class of anthracisados. apologize for any pronunciation. And that was basically like the Spanish people who were collaborators with the French. And there's an element here of reform trying to remove some of the church's powers and some of the powers of uh, the king and put them into kind of the emerging middle classes. But for the common people, they saw terrible atrocities. Um, And this doesn't just go to Spain, it goes to Portugal. Um, a lot of my research that I'm doing is on Porto and they're going into Porto and on one part of the road, there is nothing but dead um, clergy. The French have killed um, priests and hung them up by the side of the road. Then they go further up and they come across a load of old ladies. This is first hand accounts of British officers. Um, I believe it. And they come across a load of old ladies and, you know, they'd be semi-retirement age, mothers, grandmothers. And they've finished castrating the French soldiers and they're hanging them up from the trees. And this is a mix of motivation that they've just seen their priests killed, but they've had their daughters raped. They've probably had their son killed and they've had their property taken away or burnt. And you're going, the motivation here, if you or your daughter has been raped, your property's been killed and your son's just, you know, (laughs) being killed in front of your eyes. And these are ordinary people who have no hand in violence, no desire to have this. And it's been thrust upon them. It's desperate. It's desperate and it's brutal and it's horrible, which brings us on to quite a a difficult way to memorise and memorialise
2: the guerrillas and, you know, the heroes and villains of it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, this comes back to an age old question, really, doesn't it? About, you know, one man's freedom fighter being another man's terrorist. and, And how do you draw those distinctions? And you're quite right. It is brutal. The one that always sticks in my mind is it's related by Edward Costello, actually, who was, for folks who don't know, a rifleman. He was in the 95th Rifles, left a a very well-known set of memoirs. And he talks about how he's in Madrid in the summer of 1812 and he takes a liking to one of the local girls. One day, this guy pitches up and I think I've got this right. And he's the brother of the girl that he likes. And he's got a necklace around his neck. And this necklace consists of a piece of string through which are threaded human ears. And this this guy is one of the local guerrillas and he takes great pride in telling Costello that these ears have been taken off of the heads of Frenchmen that he's killed. So there there is this kind of really grisly element. And as you say, the mutilation is is a key part of the, the revenge that these people enact. Well, linking into our sharp
1: element, that is going to be very shocking for a soldier. So a soldier is a professional. You might have joined for various reasons. Normally in this era, desperation, poverty, tiny hint of patriotism and adventure. But really, it's the desperation and the chance to earn some money, maybe even escape the law and get away. Um, but there's, there's sets of these rules. And if you're captured, yes, you're probably going to have to march a very long way with very little food possibly prison ships, the French we put on huge um, stinking ships in Portsmouth Harbour, famously. And and the treatment's not nice, but there's rules that you will get some food, you'll get some shelter, and eventually you'll get okay treatment. You're not going to be beaten, you're not going to be mutilated. So the idea that if you were captured by a gorilla is going to be very shocking that you think that they've thrown those rules out, and it's going to be worrying to people like riflemen, Ned Costello, i thinking very famous accounts of Benjamin Harris, and there's quite a few quite good uh, first-hand accounts of the 95th 1950s, It's one of the reasons that Bernard Cornwell chose them as an individual regiment, they've got some really good first-hand accounts that we can draw upon and I strongly recommend people to pick up um, Ned Costello and uh, Benjamin Harris, because they're really um, accessible, they're out there and they're really fun reads but it's going to be worrying, because you're worrying that the enemy might throw the rules out for you and that's one thing, but for the French, it became real fear. They, the fear of a capture from a guerrilla, is we're kind of talking Second World War, hot, like films where you're talking torture to death. There is no chance, really, you're going to be picked up and uh, cashiered across the British.
2: Yeah, that's a really nice kind of comparison. One of the because I, when I was researching a little bit for the Second World War years ago now, I remember reading about how. The Germans preferred to be captured by the by British troops um, in Normandy rather than the Polish freedom, free, free Polish um, units that were serving in the region because they knew what would happen to them if they ended up in the hands of the Polish units, uh, which is essentially they would just disappear. No, um, they'd never make their way to a, a prison camp because they'd be killed along the line of the march. Um, and one that really um, sticks in my mind is this guy who's actually captured by uh, some Brits, German who's captured by some Brits. And he, the Poles uh, turn up and they go, yeah, we'll, we'll take him. We'll, we'll take him back to um, the, the, the depot behind the lines. And the guy's pleading with them not to let the Polish troops take him because he knows exactly what's happened. And the Brits actually just go, you know what? We don't want to have a fight about this. Here, you take this German. You deal with him." Yeah, there's actually a very um, good comparison with that one, Zach. So uh, I think
1: it was in Scoville, uh, who's a codebreaker, British uh, intelligence officer in the peninsula. He's sent off to talk to a captured um, cavalry officer. So the cavalry used quite a lot to relay messages. So this is a French cavalry officer. If he was captured by the British... You know, he'd be having an okay lifestyle. He'd be allowed to roam around the nearby town with the promise: "Do not escape. If you escape, then we will we will basically put you as a prisoner." So they always get benefit of the doubt. He's with the guerrillas, and he's not telling them much information. He's been beaten up. He's missing some teeth. He's bleeding. British officer comes in. He starts to talk to him, officer to officer. But his passing comment is: "You won't see me again." And he's going, oh, you're going to escape. And he's like, no, I'm going to be killed. Like, this is this is my fate now. And he, he inquired, I think it was quite a senior officer, uh, I forget the exact rank, but let's talk major or higher. And um, this British officer inquired about him. And yeah, he, he lasted a few months and the, the French um, officer died at the hands of the guerrillas. And he knew that. And it was quite kind of grim determination from him to try to hold out because he hates the guerrillas. And that's where it has a bit of a negative effect, this kind of guerrilla warfare, because it motivates the French to be harsher on the local population who are possibly innocents. And so it's a bit of a downward spiral. It ultimately pays off, but it could have gone really badly, but well, it did lead to a lot more repression.
2: But it could have led to a lot more repression and uh, ultimately failure as well. Yeah, this is a really important point in terms of how we remember the guerrillas, isn't it? Because we... It's really important that we are balanced in this and that we don't just go, Oh yeah, the Spanish guerrillas, they're all patriots and, and, you know, they're doing wonderful stuff because that's not true. And it's equally it tr- true that the guerrillas on their own couldn't have won this conflict any more than Wellington on his own could have won the conflict. You know, the two needed each other in order for the Peninsula War to unfold in the way that it did. I've got some very quick stats um, here, and taken
1: from Charles Oman, who, if anyone knows, is kind of like the knowledge on the Peninsular War. He really has. Yeah, he basically the wrote the Bible knowledge. on it, didn't he? It is. A, I mean, I, there's so many volumes, but I, I concentrate on volume one or two for the beginning of the Peninsular War, and they're really weighted. They look like you've picked up a copy of the, the you know, the, the old and New Testament, and they're, they're fantastic. They're quite in depth, and I don't normally recommend them as an opening. Uh, but anyway, statistics of the casualties of the French and their allies. Remember, they've got Spanish uh, in there. They've got Swiss in there. They've got Polish in there and quite a few German nations. Um, but the French army, rough estimates is that they lost 45,000 men to battle. Okay. 45,000 men to battle. 76,650 to the guerrilla activities. So almost double were killed by guerrillas as in, in an open battle with the British or the Spanish. And then actually 118,000 for sickness, accidents, desertion, losses. And probably a few of those could be taken by the Spanish, because if people go in wandering off of one or two, they are going to be picked off by guerrillas or even opportunistic Spanish and Portuguese peasants. If they see a Frenchman lost, they're more likely, this is going back to my you know, the old ladies I see near four, so if they see um, two Frenchmen who ran away because they no longer want to be a conscript in Napoleon's mm-hmm. army. Remember, a lot of these men are conscripts. This is fighting because they're forced to, not out patriotism, patricism, which is something about the cult Napoleon today kind of brushes over. But they see these men. They are not going to be going, look, you want to be going north they're more likely this little old lady is going to sneak up behind him and cut his throat when he's um, going to the toilet or something he's not, not looking in the other direction. So it's there's a lot of casualties there. So almost double the number of casualties from guerrilla activity as they were from battle, which is not how you think of a war. We think of a war being. Two sides stand together at this area, red coats, blue coats, and they fire cannons and muskets at each other until they run away. And there's so much more going on in the daily activity and it's that away from the battlefield element that the guerrillas have the most impact. Now one of the other areas that they work in, not just wearing down the huge number of French numbers, is to help bring the British, Spanish and Portuguese army to the battlefield by using intelligence. They have the local knowledge and they're not always part of the Spanish army.
2: Yeah, I mean, there are three ways that I would characterise what the guerrillas did. As you've covered already, one of those is attrition. Um, the, the second is intelligence. And the, the intelligence is absolutely vital. And it's incredible, the the scale of the success in terms of the intelligence gathering side of things. Because of this practice of the guerrillas, of launching these ambushes on small forces, it made communication between other the different French armies in Spain really difficult you've got to bear in mind that there isn't a centralised command system in Spain. This is one of the issues that the French face all the way through the conflict. They don't have a centralised system of control. Yes, Napoleon installs his brother Joseph as the King of Spain, but Joseph is not a military leader by any means. He hasn't got the, the skill set, he hasn't actually got the gravitas in my opinion, to make these these different, quite arrogant marshals of France in some instances work together. The, the individuals are kind of acting like Mini overlords within their own provinces that they yes. command, and the orders therefore come from Paris a lot of the time, aren't they? They do, and this is part of the problem that they face. That if if there is any form of centralised control, it's actually coming from Napoleon in the Tuileries uh, Palace in in Paris. And think about the communication times. You know, it's you, you write a letter, it's going to take weeks to reach Paris. Napoleon needs to do a response. It takes weeks to get back to you. By the time that happens, the strategic situation is completely changed. But, but so what they try and do sometimes is communicate between each other. With the guerrillas, though, that becomes exceedingly difficult, because if you have a messenger and give them a couple of uh, bodyguards and escort, that's prime target for a guerrilla band. To, to pick off and so what you find is that if the the different commanders want their messages to reach um, their, their counterpart in another part of the country they need to send whole regiments of cavalry to escort a single message and that's the point at which you start to see how big a logistical problem these these guerrillas pose and equally if they don't do that, the other way to do it actually is to send multiple messages in the hope that one gets through. But quite often what you see is that they'll send five or six different versions of the same message, and all of them will get picked up by the guerrillas. And what do they do? They pass it to these intelligence gathering officers that you were talking about, and that finds, that finds its way to Wellington's desk. And so he's able to work out what the French are planning to do, and therefore put his own plans together accordingly in order to kind of hoodwink them. So it's, it's an incredibly effective system. It really is. I mean, I, I, I do compare the Second World War to the Napoleonic Wars,
1: and I'm not directly comparing Bonapartism to Nazism, though I'm not a fan of Bonapartism, and I make that very blatant. They are very different ideologies. But you do have, in the Peninsula War, a bit of a like similarity to the Enigma system. The French didn't know that we'd crack the code, mostly under Scoville. We wanted the leading intelligence officers uh in wellington's headquarters he had cracked coded messages that the french were using across the empire so they were sending multiple messages going oh well if only one gets through it's fine And in the five that get captured they won't be able to read them because it's all coded we capture one and we know where their strengths we know their movements we know their intentions but the fact that none of them are getting through and that actually if you really want one to get through you're talking a regiment of cavalry which is around 600 men and those are coming under attack, and they're actually being blockaded, like mountain passes, mountain attacks that have been repulsed back. And I'm actually thinking of a scene now in uh, Sharpe's Rifles, where they come across um, Teresa and all of her men, kind of on these cliffs around them, and they have no option but to surrender because then they're coming up behind them. And this must be terrifying. You're on your horse, and there are hundreds of these guerrillas coming after you. They're very good shots, they've probably got traps, they know the land, they've been waiting there for you for days, and they're really motivated for blood. And they don't really care what the end of aim is, it doesn't matter if it's your regiment or the next regiment, they're just there to disrupt and kill. An incredible organisation from the form of guerrillas, when we're talking in an age, not even just pre-social media, but we're talking pre-radios. So the only way to organise these kind of things is for face-to-face chats between guerrillas, uh, speeches. Occasional writing, but some of them are going to be illiterate. So actually, even the, even the priesthood in Spain plays a role to kind of spread the message, not only of the patricism from the pulpit, but
2: actually have write letters and carry them on. And it's also worth bearing in mind the psychological element here, because if you're a soldier after a certain amount of time, I mean you'll know this better than I do. I would imagine you learn to, even if you're a private, you learn to sort of read the ground and you start to learn where the danger zones are. And so you must sort of constantly be looking over your shoulder the whole time, wondering where are these attacks going to, to come from? You' Should... talk about tails in um,
1: Afghanistan. They talk about piles of stones uh, that might mark uh, a bomb, an IED, or even um, a bottle on a, or a rag on a piece of stick that would be the tail for where um, something might be, or even the distance. So they're using these kind of examples. And you barely have that if you're moving. It's what, over a 1,000 kilometres from Madrid to France, and you need to know all of that area. It's only when you're back quite safely into France, several kilometres into France, because the guerrillas can cross the border very easily. They're used to it if they're smugglers, that you can actually start to relax. And then you've got the rest of the entire Spain and Portugal that you're on edge the whole time. The cities aren't safe. Um, only when you're back within sight of your own garrison, you're actually safe. And the smaller garrisons can be attacked.
0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend.
2: And the net result of all of this is that there are 250,000 French troops in Spain at the height of the Peninsular War. Now, the way to kind of think about this is that Wellington in 1812 uh, ends up, he he liberates Madrid after the Battle of Salamanca. um, And that galvanises a number of the French uh, commanders in the region to give up their hold on the countryside. And combine against him. So in late 1812, he's faced with about 100,000 Frenchmen. He, in effect, is outnumbered somewhere in the region of uh, perhaps a little less than two to one. Um, But they have they have a huge advantage of numbers. And he has to basically cut and run for the, the Portuguese border. It's the only point of safety. And it's quite interesting that such is Wellington's kind of moral ascendancy by this point in terms of psychological impact for the French, that he stops at one point just outside of Salamanca for a second time and, and offers them battle, says, you know, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough, in effect. And the, the French go... Mm, Sean um, Bean approves of this message. <laughs> Indeed. And uh, the French go, you know what? No, we we won't fight you. We'll just keep pushing you back. Um, But the point is, 100,000 men is enough to completely contain Wellington and basically push him back and keep pushing him back. So the other 150,000 are effectively there trying to deal with guerrilla operations. And in time, yes, they are able to do it, because if you concentrate enough men in a place, you're able to kind of crush the, the resistance. Um, but you end up fighting something that's quite like the Vietnam War, um, in effect, that same kind of mentality. Or you mentioned Afghanistan, you know, the Soviets uh, against the the Mujahideen, what the organisation that actually became the Taliban, um, fighting off the the Soviet invasion um, in I forget if it was the late eighties or early nineties. But that's the kind of conflict that you're facing, where a very skilled army with plenty of technology is actually being, having, you know, it handed to them by a force that is nowhere near as well organized, probably not as sophisticated on many, many levels, but is nonetheless much better able to make, to take the advantages out of the cars that they do have. Yeah, very good
1: adjectives, annoyingly uh, better than Game of Thrones, I'm afraid, uh, but Mujahideen and, uh, and Vietnam. And what those two have kind of got in common is that the, the opposition doesn't respect them. And that's what's kind of happening here. The French do not respect the peasantry as a guerrilla force. They think that beneath them, they think peasants are simple and educated. And as soldiers, we're far more disciplined. They're going to run away. And it simply isn't the case. The motivation is so high, whether that's for banditry or that's for patricism. The Spanish and the Portuguese um, guerrillas are very well motivated and become incredibly well organised. With surprisingly high numbers, they're really able to call along a lot of the local population.
2: Yeah, I mean, what's really missing from this is a real push for a hearts and minds approach in a lot of the country, not in the whole of the country.
1: Keep thinking the the term hearts and minds, Gerald Templar's motivations on how to do a counterinsurgency. And they don't. They really don't. They are the Amphastasados, but you're not going to win over your village if you've walked into a village and killed a few dozen people and stolen some of the property and the food, burnt down the odd house, raped the odd woman. Next week, when you go, oh, I need to have some crops, I need to have some intelligence,
2: they're going to hate you for generations. Yeah, completely. And the way that they respond to the guerrillas is pretty key as well. You know, you've know, you got hangings, you've got executions, often without trial in many cases. Um, I think General Kellerman, one of Napoleon's great cavalry commanders, became known as the Hangman of Valladolid, which is a, a town in, in sort of the northern part of Spain. There are exceptions to that, though. Sushay, who ends up commanding on the east coast of Spain, he's um, much better able to kind of uh, achieve a balance between keeping the, the population on side and achieving command. In fairness, we should also say that, you know, the guerrillas weren't angels, even to the local Spanish population. And whilst some of them were obviously kind of fighting for patriotic reasons and were able to work quite effectively in association with the local hunters, the the regional governments, sometimes force was needed to acquire supplies. Sometimes it was just used anyway. I was reading something the other day about um, one guerrilla who just rode up to a woman he likes to look up at the side of the, the road told her to get on his horse and rode off. And because of the fear that the local population had for the guerrillas, nobody said anything. The girl got on his horse and, that, you know, you can imagine what followed. Um, so th- there there are plenty of examples of abuses of authority. Um, and there is a debate about to what extent were the guerrillas even a bit counterproductive for the Spanish army. Now, the Spanish army isn't particularly good Uh, we we have to be brutally honest it's it's not an effective fighting force yes we talked about the battle of balen last time but as as we said balen is the exception rather than the rule because you have these guerrilla bands they kind of act as a way of sapping strength from in the form of desertion from the, the spanish regular army but it also means that when they recruit in their local regions there are fewer men available to go and serve in the regular army as well So you've got a tension there that that is worth us acknowledging. But I think part of the reason that we talk about the guerrillas so much is because of really the fact that the the Spanish army doesn't do so well during this period. There's something that even at the time, even if as it was happening, the the newspapers in Britain loves to kind of pick up on. You see it in the caricatures, this kind of insurgent spirit and this idea of the whole countryside rising up. And I think it's that that we like to pick up on and the fact that the spanish didn't do particularly well in the field which serves as a nice contrast to wellington and i think the brits particularly kind of like that kind of more favorable comparison but also it means that you can kind of say well look actually where was the spanish war effort it was within the guerrillas you know these patriots in, in arms and i think that's part of the mythology that kind of shrouds the memory
1: yeah, I mean, the Spanish army was huge, so we, it's hard to ignore it. And they did have some victories. They also had a lot of battles. But like you say, didn't have a lot of success. And so it's kind of slightly unfair to say, well, all the Spanish fought very hard and they were all over the place. We go, well, a lot were under arms and they were just quite poorly led or poorly trained and they didn't have that opportunity. And so, yeah, the Spanish army, I mean, it's a whole separate thing to unpack, didn't have the successes of the guerrillas. And there is a romantic element with the guerrillas uh, that persists to this day. Um, again, uh, largely a Bernard Cornwell factor, I think, is in there. Uh, but there's also very good uh, books like Death of the French, a.k.a. Rifleman Dodd. And he works alongside guerrillas. It is difficult because they aren't shining examples of virtual chivalry. Uh, they are normally very tough people who've got an enemy presented in front of them. Uh, but it obviously led to quite a lot of counter feelings. So as well as the guerrillas, you end up with the war directly against the guerrillas. So you've got easily a hundred to, uh, depending on the time, to 200 roughly thousand Frenchmen uh, under arms in the occupied areas. Uh, but they actually start having to bring in armed gendarmerie down into uh, the border region, especially. Uh, in 1810, there's 6,300 of these, of which almost a thousand of them are cavalry with lances. Uh, that's a huge amount of police to try to police those mountains and try to block up what's a very porous border anyway, uh, then, into an area. And then the French locally tried to recu- uh, recruit counter-guerillas or contra-guerillas. And there's very difficult numbers of these. They are recruited uh, by local commanders or by local uh, towns. And they were given into either little sub-regiment or a, a corps of guides is quite common. And these men, again, they're either the anfrancisados who are desperate or they're actually ex guerrillas who've had a falling out with the leaders and have gone to fight against them and earn a very basic wage. Now, the problem with them is they're mostly Spanish because of this. And they're fighting against, they're recruited only purely for to fight against other Spanish. It meant their life expectancy was increasingly short because not only were if they were captured uh, on duty, was their life at risk, uh, but everyone in the area, the town, their family would quite likely shun them. And the likelihood at the end of the war, if they were unsuccessful, uh, was going to be that they were going to be executed anyway, as being a collaborator. But it is interesting that they did have these units uh, to try to basically as kind of motivated and trained as a light infantry, skirmishers, counterinsurgency troops, as we would know them, to go into the hills and fight or protect the areas. Uh, quite often they were based in blockhouses, So we'd see these as like fortified pillboxes uh, that would be marked on the roads, often with a second or third story. So they've got some views of and they can try to see the next one at the top of the next valley. And these would be attacked. Uh, they had little out uh, trenches sometimes to try to give themselves some protection at night and to try to allow some um, kind of reinforcement of the roads that you could go or ride between road to road and I'll be protected uh, by these uh, uh, these blockhouses. However, you've got to remember, the average range of a musket then is about 80 yards. So if these things are a few miles apart, there's huge gaps in the middle that lightning raids by um, guerrillas can take place. And the block houses effectively just witness the battles. But um, yeah, they, they, they did have some effects. There, there are some friends, uh,
2: the French in Spain, and Portugal. So that for another dodgy film comparison is like when the beacons of, what's it called? Amandir are lit in the Lord of the Rings. And Gondor when, calls for aid. Gondor calls for aid and Rohan will answer. <laughs> so there you go another dodgy film comparison for people you were going
1: to talk about this some of the beacons in game of thrones too i think along with the bridge
2: but I'm this is true here. i think this is more true analogy than mine. yes sharp um, sharp boy we're on to sharp <laughs> so you were going to talk about some of the the gorillas themselves which is let's bring a, really let's nice bring a few to life if, if we can yeah,
1: yeah. um i mean it's difficult it's, lots of this is based upon hearsay and legend um, but one that's, that kind of shows a very good example of this, and I already apologise for the pronunciation of the name, um, is Manuela Oñoro, uh, Man- Manuela Masana Uh She was a, a local in Madrid during the Dos de Mayo uh, uh, uprising, as such, and basically she was based around 17 years old. And uh, during the beginning of the uprising, just before it actually, the the legend goes that she was on her way uh, back home and a handful of French soldiers tried to grope her and potentially rape her. And she actually pulls out a pair of scissors uh, from her bag and, uh, and fights them off. There's also a bit of a legend that before that, she had actually been involved in the fighting. Uh, but during uh, this her fighting off with a weapon, she is then arrested and the French actually executes her. Now she was known already for her like kind of charming, very popular uh, personality, and they recorded her as one of kind of the, the patriots of the war. And it motivated a lot of people in the outlying areas around Madrid that they'd executed a seventeen year old for kind of fighting off the the French who were Trying to attack her, and it, though she wasn't strictly a guerrilla, it's one of these beginning of the war martyrs, and you're seeing the brutality of the French there. So yeah, Manuela's being the first one on my list.
2: That's really scary. I used to be a teacher. I taught seventeen-year-old kids, and just the thought that you would, ex- yeah, that's mm. this it's, is it, this is my problem with yeah the yeah. Peninsula War. And, yeah. Uh, the, French, the French the French uh, behaviours there. This is why we take issue with the whole vive Pre crowd. So that's uh I've really... I really can pronounce that without choking. Yeah yeah, you, you bring up a little bit of sick, don't you? Um so she's an example of one of the female gorillas. Inevitably a lot of the gorillas were blokes. One of the most famous was Don Julian Sanchez. Um he was based in the Leon province, which is kind of in the northeastern part of Spain around the Spanish Portuguese border. And he initially was in a group called the Voluntarios de Ciudad Rodrigo. That was an attempt at a Spanish accent. Um, It was appalling. Um, Now he, um, he, he was an enzyme in that group initially. So it's a group of volunteers formed for the defense of the Ciudad Rodrigo region. But he decided in the end to form his own partida, his own band of guerrillas, uh, partly because his family were murdered. So, again, you can start to see the motivations for some of those fighting. And he ended up, the reason that we know so much about him is that he ended up working very closely with the British from 1811 when they move into that region on the Spanish-Portuguese border. Uh, And by 1812, he's got a band of something like 2,000 men, including artillery, and works sometimes actually directly alongside the the british sort of drafted into the british army but these are these are guerrillas they're not trained troops and so they don't form part of kind of the rank and file of the line if you will there's no way that they'd be used in a pitched battle but they're used as part of this kind of intelligence gathering operation particularly by wellington in order to kind of put those feelers out and see what's happening in the the heart of spain
1: i've got uh, another one i was going to uh pick up on. So there's another one of these kind of legendary figures. Uh, Maria Martina Ilogoria. Now she's very interesting because she actually takes part in the main fighting. Uh, the first we really know much about her is her whole family were captured by the French for fighting uh, as guerrillas. And they found uh, Martina in men's clothes uh, actually, and after short interrogation, that she was part of a guerrilla band belonging to El Manco. So we get a really good we get really good names early on for the, uh, guerrilla leaders. Uh, she actually gets away. And the year later, it's recorded that she's leading her own force of 50 men. So she is a female woman, uh, out there leading, uh, men in, in fighting in battle, uh, in probably some atrocities. not going to lie. It's not going to be all nice. Uh, she's able to continue uh, leading on and becomes a bit of an area commander. Uh, She's captured again, and she, her men are executed by firing squad, but she's spared, which kind of continues her legend, actually, that she keeps getting captured and keeps on the fighting. Uh, she gets married and survives the war. And actually, in a bit of a thing that we're going to touch on in a moment, uh, she becomes a abandoned. Uh, however, she's acquitted, and uh, Ferdinand VII of Spain actually uh, personally gives her an honorary title of a captain in the army. There's quite a few legends around her, about that she kind of disguised her sex and she carried on fighting and all sorts of uh, different examples. But they seem to be uh, embellished by her descendants. It actually turns out, I think better, more more Teresa-esque, more 21st century, that she was just wearing men's clothes because they were comfortable. She was wearing um, trousers rather than skirts. And she was fighting. And she wasn't the only woman to be doing this. There are other women in her band and in other bands actually fighting side by side um, in mixed units. Especially in my mind, not only Teresa, I've got the Kurdish fighters in kind of recent conflicts up there. Women who are very proficient uh, and standing uh, shoulder to shoulder in very desperate circumstances, which is what made me think of uh, the Kurdish uh, ladies who are very famous for their determination. But she uh, she survives and she, she lives out the war. And uh, again, yeah, there's, there's quite a few place names named after her. Uh, so that's Martina.
2: Probably the most fam- famous is Francisco Epothimina, uh who was uncle of the brilliantly named El Estudiante. That was Xavier, Mina he nice. was called. El Estudiante, that's Spanish for the student. Uh, he was based in Navarre, so a region we were talking about earlier. He was a peasant, so you know, not somebody high-born by any means, Worked on the family farm, and he rallied Xavier's band when Xavier was captured by the French. By 1810, he had about 3,000 men under his command, so already a, a large band, and became nicknamed the King of Navarre, which shows the extent of the control that he was able to kind of exercise over that region on the the Pyrenees. By the end, he claimed by the end of the peninsula, he claims to have 13,500 men, had taken part in 143 battles, had lost 5000 men, but claims to have killed 26,000 Frenchmen and taken 14,000 prisoners. Now, he's claiming those figures himself, so we can take those with a massive pinch of salt. But even so, it gives you an idea of the scale of the force that he had under his command. And he's one of the the rare exception another of the rare exceptions john julian sanchez being the the other one um where he was actually drafted into the army but he is given command of a regular division so standard disciplined drilled troops in the spanish army from 1813 and i believe i'm right in saying serves alongside wellington right yeah i mean a few of them do get division of commands i was reading
1: in preparation for this, by uh, the end of the uh, Peninsular War, that in the north there are eight divisions of Spanish troops. So there's kind of the senior commands. i always try to work my way up. The division is quite a large command. Of those eight divisions, three of them are ex guerrilla commanders, and they're quite mixed in uh, with regular and guerrilla troops. So they actually do offer a lot of these guerrillas uh, the chance to put on a uniform, learn, drill and fight, and carry on and kind of learn the respectable way of warfare, air versus verse commas all over that. Um, but it's interesting that they are then putting in at general level guerrillas who have no military experience. And a lot of these guerrillas actually don't come from a military background. I think it's a bit of a fallacy that we think of them all as deserters or uh, running away from the army to join the guerrillas. A lot of them are just your normal people. At, at last, for the female examples, I've got uh, Augustina de Aragon, and uh, she is also known as the Maid of Zaragoza, uh, one of the most brutal sieges uh, for French or Spanish. And her husband's one of the uh, artillery captains. Uh, manning a large artillery piece in the siege and they'd put them in streets and fire them at the, the French and they'd come on in large numbers and you can imagine what the grape shot, the canister could do to people it could really change the battles and uh, nearly everybody on his gun crew uh, had been wounded it's possible she was there delivering food supplies she's sometimes depicted with baskets of food but she was certainly right there by the fighting when this gun crew was wiped out by French musket fire and she takes off uh, some of the artillery tools such as the, the matchlock to, to fire the gun and she starts firing it and then loading it single-handedly uh, until some other local civilians come out and help her and it shows how just desperate the siege was uh, but she really epitomized the siege in the spirit of the resistance uh, just a normal local lady who was there and at the moment she was called on she came and fought uh, she married one of uh, those men that helped in the defence, and she was later uh, captured. And she'd already become quite a legendary figure at this time. Uh, she was captured and she managed to make her escape. And uh, after she managed to make her escape, apparently a really daring one, there's not many details of it, uh, she helped another rebel leader from the guerrillas organise uh, local low raids and low-level raids and attacks harassing the French within the area. And uh, she became known for unorthodox tactics and helping and trainings and actually being a bit of a liaison with the uh, British intelligence officers that were coming in. There's a little bit of a legendary figure, which uh, historians such as uh, Nick Lipskin tried to dispel, but it's always very difficult with uh, these areas, if they are true or not. But the local legend kind of goes that she uh, was commissioned into the Spanish army as a captain during the conflict and fought at the Battle of Vitoria. Say Nick Lipskin says it didn't happen. Spanish legend says it did. So we'll probably never quite finish that debate. But she survived the war. Uh, she she married a doctor and uh, she retired back home. And she was known to walk around uh, the city wearing her medals. And I think she lived to a good old age into her 70s. So there's uh, she's also in a lot of artwork. Uh, very stunning uh, paintings. Normally of her with a gun and. Uh, by them and there's uh, a few different pictures and i think statues to her locally as well so uh the maid of Aragon as a artillery officer i think is a brilliant way to finish on that
2: so at a bit of a tangent if you were to give yourself a gorilla name or should we do this for each other
1: i was going to give myself a name
2: I'm sure you were going to give yourself a very flattering gorilla name, Marcus, no, but that's no. not necessarily what the people want to hear. That's not what the people want to hear. I
1: mean, I'm a Chino-wearing twat, so it'd be, it'd be something like, like The Chap or something
2: a bit, yeah. So you think yeah. it will be El Chapo?
1: El Chapo
2: is good. See, I'd have gone for El What would, would you call me? <laughs> I'd have you El Tweedo. I don't know El what to know. I don't know what the Spanish is for Tweed, but but let's say that it's... Tweed? El, El <laughs> I've got no idea. My Spanish is appalling. Um, uh, Yourself, let's call it what would I call myself? I don't know what I'd call myself. I dead dread to think what you're going to call me. Going on earlier conversations,
1: this was something completely offline. Now Zach said, oh, he wants to learn the piano. You look at Zach. He looks like a pianist. They're not a giant pianist. A pianist. So... The Pianist, also a nod to a famous film,
2: could uh, could work for you. I, can I just say in my defence, I sort of half know The Piano already. This isn't some kind of random... No, no, no. But, uh, but uh, I also have
1: visions of you cutting off French fingers, and that's your motive of torture as well.
2: That, that suddenly got very dark. I wasn't expecting us really? to go there, but um, hey, I guess, I guess that fits. Okay, well, I'm just going
1: to give people a few nicknames, because we have... The needle, don't ask her why, uh, in sharp. And I'm just going to read out a few real life ones that Bernard Cornwell might have drawn example on. So we have the waistcoat, the snail, the tanner, the doctor, the little marquis, the obstinate and the friar. So there's quite a few in there and it goes on and on and on as a list. So these nicknames of the needle are drawn from real facts, of these people have some fantastic names. But I know in one of the uh, Bernard Cornwell shoehorn names, they have El Castrato,
2: which is the one that always kind of sends shivers up my mind in one of the later Sharp books. That was genuinely the first time I ever came across the concept of castration at the age of 13, reading a shark's book. And oh, yeah. I noticed how you didn't bother to attempt the, the Spanish pronunciation there. Nicely dodged. I mean, that was prior planned, and I thought we would go straight for translations.
1: <laughs> Anglo-Saxon tongue, I blame my genetics. Um, yeah, so the, the Spanish and Portuguese guerrillas, it's a really difficult history to kind of look at and unpick. Were they heroes? Were they villains? I mean, after the war, what happened? Some had joined the army and went back home and enjoyed a private life, some had found very rich pickings um, from the loots that they'd had, either French pay or the individuals, you know, a, a French soldier is going to carry all of his wealth in the world in his knapsack, or under his shacket, actually. And if you've killed enough of them in a day and over the course of eight years, you could get quite rich. And a lot of them found it very difficult to return to a life of normality. Therefore, Spain in the late 1815 to the 1820s had a real problem with banditry. And often these people were what we'd be viewing almost as war heroes. They could never give it up. I'm always thought of as um, privateers that became pirates. You know, the the intentions could be honourable, but you suddenly find there's a very quick, um, rich scheme and you want to keep it. It's that kind of thing. And it became a real problem for the uh, legitimate Spanish governments after the war, trying to put down these areas. It's where actually today the Spanish uh, police uh, was formed. The Garda Civila, they were formed basically as an armed wing to actually put down the banditry and was ultimately successful. But there's quite a few accounts of uh, British and uh, Portuguese tourists, actually holidaymakers. Remember, it's now peace in Europe for the first time in a generation. So the people are traveling Europe. And uh, they tried to go into Spain and visit. And it's thought of as the highwaymen, just too rich outside of the city. You just couldn't move between cities, really. So, um, yeah, the, the legend of them as well. What happens to
2: Yeah, th- I guess that brings us back kind of full circle, doesn't it, in terms of how do we remember these people? For me, the guerrillas were an integral part of the Peninsular War because the guerrillas couldn't win without the British and Portuguese army and the success that they enjoyed under Wellington, but also vice versa, particularly in terms of providing vital intelligence, um, the attrition, which as we've discussed was just phenomenal, but crucially in tying down men. For me, it's the guerrillas that make Spain Napoleon's Spanish ulcer, bleeding him of men, a quarter of a million men. Just think what he could have done with that if he'd been able to take those men and and deploy them somewhere else in his, his conflicts across Europe it could have led to a a very different kind of spin on history. Um, So, yeah, an incredible contribution and one that is sadly probably too overlooked. Absolutely too overlooked. Um, Probably too
1: romanticised when it does get looked at. But as you say, I mean, even if those men had not even gone as far as Moscow and changed the war there, if they'd just been redeployed, you know, our our friends in the rifles would have had a very different time if they've suddenly got 100,000 more men coming towards them on the field of battle. It would have changed the outcome of the local battles, Wellington's victories as well. So they played an incredibly important part in the war, but then also the foundation of Spain as a country afterwards and the legends that they've uh, persisted.
2: So, uh, yeah, the uh, Iberian Peninsula guerrillas, really important to the conflict. So tell folks what we're doing next time. We're going to do a little special for you. Is that right? We do have a really good special coming up.
1: Uh, with waterloo uncovered i know uh this is with uh such nice people as well this uh was with professor tony pollard and some of his team from uh, the waterloo uncovered charity which is uh one that's got a special place in my heart for both reasons um so if you don't know waterloo uncovered i encourage everybody to go and look it up they're on all the social media and have a very good website and on the waterloo uncovered website they've done lockdown lectures where they've talked about all the work they've done in the last couple of years at Waterloo. They started off at uh excavating there, and they spread out to the battlefield. Because of local uh, Belgian law, that battlefield has never been properly archaeologically surveyed. It means that there's a lot of history. They are rewriting our understanding of Uh, between some historians' archive work, like Gareth Glover, it's backing up what they're finding, which is French musket balls inside Hugemont Farm. We always thought that there was only one foray inside, and there's now a lot more. So I encourage you to go look it up. The other reason, not only are they doing great archaeological work, is it's a rehabilitation. It started off with soldiers in conflict, and now it's kind of spreading a bit far further. Uh, but it's really important. And they, um, the charity work they're doing is giving people not, uh, a trade skill. They're helping people just do things. You've got triple amputees from recent conflicts such as Afghanistan who are going out there as metal detectors. They have people who have um, who've suffered with post-traumatic stress disorder who are doing um, logging work from the finds and finding therapy. Uh, and I think it's really important that we look at this. I mean, myself as a reservist, I find it quite poignant. But actually with my historian hat on there's a lot of mental health issues that have kind of touched upon very briefly in the Peninsula War, which are now looked at the same way, whether you want to call it shell shock, combat stress, PTSD. It's really important that kind of a nod to history that we look after the soldiers and the wounded today, or even just the survivors of these conflicts. And it's given them the skill, it's given them therapy, and it's helping the history unravel in front of us so we can read it better so yeah i'm really looking forward to um tony pollard and i are talking we're going to have a small group and they're going to tell us about uh the, the history that they're changing every year on year uh 2020 they weren't able to go dig because of the global pandemic but they've done it for the last few years and fingers crossed they're able to uh, return very soon uh they are a charity they mostly they all have like day jobs and they give up some of their summer holiday to go out there and leave these archaeological digs so they do rely on some charity uh supports and we're going to uh, give them a platform to uh, to talk about that.
2: Absolutely, yeah, they are a brilliant organisation. I remember speaking to Stuart Eve back in June about what they do. Absolutely fantastic. It's going to be a, a great one. So I join mean, us Stuart for that. You Might be organisation uh, able to join us as well. There's a few, so we'll we'll get the names confirmed in the
1: in the near future. Yeah, so join us next time for a special on sharpshooters with Waterloo Uncovered. And then we will return next month uh, for next in the series, which we'll announce uh, on that episode. So we'll come to you, Waterloo Uncovered, uh, coming to you very soon. Thank you, everyone, and uh, stay sharp. Stay sharp.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.